Today I have with me uh, Dr. Elaine Lansford. She has a private practice in Austin, Texas. Um, she works there as a licensed clinical psychologist. And I heard about her through reading uh, one of Dr. Stephen Finn's books. And he studied a little bit of control mastery theory. And um, he mentioned Dr. Elaine Lansford by name. And so I reached out to her in hopes that she would discuss uh, just her practice and her work uh, along with control mastery theory with me. And she's graciously uh, decided to do so. So uh, Elaine, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, it's, um, it's a real pleasure to meet with you. And um, I was just wondering if you could kind of start by telling, uh, telling us what you got you into psychology in the first place. Ah, well, <laughs> um, I, I, when I was an early adolescent, I felt a calling to it. Mm, okay. And I, uh, so since I was about 13, I mm. thought if I'm worthy of it, this is what I want to do. Oh. So I uh, proceeded to try to get experience for myself. And of course, got a degree in psychology and got my first job at the Austin State Hospital, which oh. was uh, both lovely and gruesome. Mm. Uh, at the same time, lovely because of the people, gruesome because of uh, what mental hospitals were like in the 1970s in Texas, at least. Mm. Uh, but I figured that if I could do all right with that, mm. then probably it made sense to go ahead and get a graduate degree. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, what, what kind of exposure did you have as a 13-year-old girl to psychology? Um, actually very little, uh -huh. although I think that psychology today mm -hmm. came into being somewhere around that time. Mm -hmm. And I, I certainly, I remember reading it when I was young, but I, I, I'm, I can't remember. Someone might have exposed me to Jung and I'm not a Jungian, but uh -huh. of course it, uh, I, I really can't remember how that oh. came about. Okay, interesting. And um, and then, so you were exposed at a young age, you did some reading, and then you went to, and you got your bachelor's? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And then you went straight into working at a, at a hospital with your bachelor's? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, as, as the, the lowest of the low, uh, a mental, yeah. what did they, I think they called us mental health workers, which oh. was, sort of uh, equivalent to lackeys, you know, we went, did, you know, whatever had to be done that for the lowest people on the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. No, you didn't do any type of like therapy, you kind of, you did, or oh, what did you do? Um, uh, largely, it was, it was kind of, you know, crowd control mm. in a lot of ways, uh -huh. but we were actually the, back then, if we came up with an idea about a group, we would, it could be pitched to our superiors and they, they generally allowed us to do it. Oh, cool. So yeah. I can remember, you know, it, having, you know, groups just to try to help orient schizophrenics. And mm. then at a later date, when we, I worked in more of a halfway house setting at the state hospital, you know, trying to, you know, teach people yoga and... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> in all manner of things. That's very pleasant. So there was a lot more freedom back then. And anything that involved care of 
people who'd essentially been forgotten by society hmm. seem to be appreciated. So oh, good. I'm sure you made a very positive impact while you were there. You you mentioned you mentioned that it was gruesome in some aspects, at least at that hospital in Texas. Can you tell a little bit about uh, the negative parts of it? How how were people treated? Or well, it was a, we the the first place I worked admitted off the streets of Houston, hmm. essentially. So every poor soul who showed significant mental health impairment uh, just got sent up to the state hospital for mm. a while. But uh, some of the staff had been there for a very long time and were there when, you know, when it was almost back when it was a lunatic asylum. Uh-huh. And they still had the uh, chains in the basement of the main building where they used to chain the inmates. Wow. So yeah. some of the people were pretty harsh mm. and they, they didn't treat the, the patients like they were people. Yeah. And it also was a rough situation in that there were many, many patients and not that good of a staff ratio. Mm-hmm. So uh, awful things could happen to patients at the hands of other patients. Mm. And then periodically we would get someone very, very violent as well as being mentally ill. And I remember when at one point there was a woman who'd taken out almost all of the male staff. Mm. And in those days, they didn't require women to do restraints. And we were taught how to, but I guess because we were female, (laughs) we were left alone. But the guys had to do it. And this particular person had injured almost every single man on staff. So she got sent away to uh, the hospital for the criminally insane. Mm. But so it just, it it was, and people that, you know, that I remember that uh, people were given free packs of this tobacco called Bugler. And I believe it was what was swept off the floor of the tobacco companies. (laughs) It was really nasty unrolled tobacco Uh so you had like hundreds of people rolling these cigarettes and smoking bugler and just sort of this gray haze (laughs) over the whole unit so Uh it just it wasn't a pleasant atmosphere yeah yeah i i don't have any experience in a in that type of a setting i'm reading a book right now by a um a, a lady who has her doctorate and uh, she works in that setting. And she's talking about even now, like, you know, people with schizophrenia, they put them in this hospital and they're away from their friends and they're away from their families. And, and then you have like everyone that's not a patient is an authority figure. And she she was just kind of mentioning how in that scenario, like what type of a mental health problem is going to, be resolved in that setting or how, like how, how much good is that doing the person? And, and I, th- I think we've come a long ways, but we still have a long ways to go. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it was somewhat of a warehouse situation. Mm. Although oddly enough, a number of prominent Austin musicians 
had their start at as uh, not as inmates, you know, as patients, uh, but as mental health workers at the Austin State Hospital. Oh, really? <laughs> Very interesting. So I don't know what that has to <laughs> yeah. do with anything, but it's yeah. a little factoid. <laughs> and how many years were you there? Uh, just a couple years. Okay. And then you went to your to continue graduate studies. Your, to get your right. I went to University of Michigan. Oh, okay, Michigan. Um, and was that kind of like a generalist um, uh, degree? Was it? Was there a certain orientation that was taught at that oh, time? Oh no, it was heavily, heavily psychoanalytic. Oh, okay. I think at that time, Michigan and Adelphi, I was told, were the two most psychoanalytic training programs in the country. Oh, okay, cool. So what, it was, it was yeah. intense. <laughs> was it, um, did they teach more of like Freudian or you said you're not a Jungian, was it like classical or neo-Freudian? No, it was very classical Freudian. Mm. Okay. Drives and super ego and id and Oedipus complex and <laughs> kind of moving into object relations. Mm. But Kohut, uh, people could handle Kernberg you know, uh -huh. because he was very object relational and he would talk about, you know, borderline personality. But Kohut was considered a little, uh, a, a little too radical <laughs> in some way. So, uh -huh. so it was, if you wanted to learn about Kohut at that time, you needed to do more reading on your own. Oh, okay. So it, it was very old fashioned, but very bright people, superbly mm -hmm. trained and uh, I, if one wished to, one would get out of that program with a very solid grounding in psychoanalytic theory. Mm, good. And uh, uh, do you still do you still kind of hold to that classical Freudian, or do you keep it in the back of your mind? Does it because it kind of orient your yeah? Now I keep it in the back of my mind. Yeah. I had my doubts even then okay. about it seemed to me it was a worldview and it that did not necessarily encompass all of the data mm. in the best way. Uh, but it was a very coherent worldview. And mm. I think that, you know, Freud's wish to make the unconscious conscious, to help people understand things, to use language mm. in order to be able to, as a part of dealing with their suffering. I mean, that's very much with me. Mm. Yeah. But you... as far as the, the classical Freudian theory, I think even among the analytic people that is now, you know, uh, the psychoanalytic thought has gone off in very different directions. Hmm. Yeah. Do you, um, do you subscribe to the, uh, you know, like, as long as your client can love and work, uh, that's kind of like the, or, or what is your kind of, yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, I thought that was quite beautiful. But uh, on the other hand, Freud's idea that, what was it? We were turning neurotic misery into everyday human suffering. That really <laughs> didn't resonate with me. Hmm. Uh, but then I, Freud was European and I think had a much more tragic view hmm. of humankind Whereas most American psychology, you know, we're an optimistic bunch uh -huh. and 
tend to prefer happier endings. Yeah, yeah. And so um, now with, with, with the way that you practice, what would be kind of your, um, I guess, how would you know when the work is finished? When the work is finished. Is there a finishing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, or, or there's a finishing enough, you know, okay. and uh, the way I practice is I generally tell people, I mean, we say goodbye and we talk about what the work meant, uh -huh. but they're always welcome to return if they would mm. want to. So it's a little less, I think some theoretical uh, kind of approaches would involve a very solid termination. And I, I do it a little more uh, uh, in what once was called the family practice model. I worked in a medical clinic for, for many years, and I like that idea that people are free to return if they need to. Mm. And, and uh, I guess, how do you know when to say goodbye for the first time? Um, generally, I think my client client and I both realize it. It, it. If the if the alliance is strong, mm. it's a mutually felt sense that mm. we've done about what we needed to do. Uh -huh. And, you know, on, on one level, they have many more coping skills, and they seem to be able to regulate their emotion. Mm. On another way of saying that it, that's more psychoanalytic, is they have an internalized sense of me or me uh, kind of agglomerated with a lot of other benign others. So they have something internal that they no longer have to turn to, uh, you know, they're, they're carrying it inside. Yeah. And I find that in good terminations, we almost always realize at about the same point that it seems mm. like the work is done. Yeah, I like that. And uh, okay, so when you finished your your graduate training, um, what what did you do next? Uh, then I ended. I went to San Antonio mm. to do a postdoctoral fellowship for a couple of years. Okay. And I would add that while I was at Michigan, I uh, managed to find just a fabulous mentor, mm. who his name was Ed Borden. Uh, he's kind of a minor, uh, but very, I think, well-respected and well-liked. He was a psychotherapy researcher, and he was terrifically interested in the universality of what was healing in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't say he was a favorite in the uh, heavily psychoanalytic crowd at Michigan, I mean, even though he was analytically trained, but they thought him a bit of an upstart uh -huh. because he, you know, he really was just, you know, it, he felt that for him, the crux of everything was the working alliance. Mm. And that was what his research was on. So he introduced me to the literature on psychotherapy research, mm. which I found fascinating. Uh -huh. And back then, other than Menninger's, there was no research to speak of on psychoanalytic therapy. Oh. Psychodynamic, Strupp and Luborski had done work and others as well. Uh -huh. But it, it was kind of a little bit different look at, uh, at the world of psychotherapy, and I loved it. <laughs> 
And so that, and so you got straight into research then? Well, I did, uh, but no, I haven't. I'm too fond of people okay. and a little too, not, not quite as cerebral as one might need to be to be a really good researcher. Uh-huh. So I did a little and made a decision that I didn't want to, I mean, Dr. Borden was willing to shepherd me into an academic career, but mm. I didn't think that was the right place. Mm, yeah. But I kept my love of, I mean, I, my parents were scientists mm. and all Although I'm much more emotionally based, I've always loved things that had data behind them, mm. not in a rigid way, uh-huh. uh, but just, uh, you know, we all have ideas about things, but why not investigate it to see if it really seems to hold up? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that reminds me, so with control mastery theory, um, from what I understand, uh, the head, let's see, the president of the current um, San Francisco, uh, research. I can't think of the name. Yeah. Yeah. He, he talked about getting into it because he was interested in what makes psychotherapy work. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I think he's found a lot of the answers in control mastery theory and the way that they, um, understand case formation. And, um, would you agree that, uh, is that kind of what drew you to control mastery theory or do you agree with the data behind that? And Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I had studied psychotherapy research and Ed Borden in passing one day said, oh, you might want to check out those people at Mount Zion. They're doing some interesting things. And I remember this was, of course, in the days of snail mail. So I <laughs> I wrote them a letter and begged some articles and they mailed them to me. And when I read them, their psychotherapy research was head and shoulders above most of the other psychotherapy research, which was outcome-based looking at scales of Mm. this and that and very it's very legitimate research Uh but i could tell that whatever they were doing with control mastery was way deeper Mm. and i just thought i have to learn this stuff Uh so uh i uh, very concertedly i had had to work to get myself educated because i didn't live in california uh where the you know the bulk of the you know, the practitioners are, yeah. but uh, I just find it amazing. I mean, oh. that was the most joyous moment to really begin to understand control mastery theory. Oh, okay. That's good to hear. I, um, I say this in jest, but I talked with Dr. George Silbershots about control mastery theory. And uh, so I was thinking, I'd like to hear it from someone who's not the president, because he's probably pretty biased, you know, <laughs> um, but no. Yeah. Yeah. No, he would have he would have more reason to speak <laughs> well of it. And I, on the other hand, am a little more of a free agent. But <laughs> the thing about control mastery theory mm-hmm. is once one has the fundamental concepts mm-hmm. of that patients have pathogenic beliefs, which uh, I, I think a lot of us would argue may have a lot of affective component as well. It's not the same thing as a maladaptive belief in cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah, okay. much more, uh, you know, actually more content, uh, similar to Bowlby's internal working models. Mm. 
in a lot of ways. But once you understand somebody's pathogenic beliefs and you understand that your work as a therapist is to help them disconfirm these beliefs that have been crippling them or oppressing them and holding them back, then you have an incredible amount of freedom. Mm. And of course, with psychoanalytic theory, you know, er everything was pretty carefully orchestrated. You know, mm. one wore a certain kind of clothing, huh. one said a certain kind of greeting, you know, one, you know, always, you know, almost everything had to be. responded to with what are your thoughts about that and so forth and it's just a very uh, formal kind of way of doing things and people could and get very stuck in the technique of it all uh -huh. and although there are benefits to that and i'm sure that there are many good therapists who like to work that way but there's some of us who want the big, big picture in mind and love the freedom mm. to be able to work in different ways. And if control mastery gave me anything, it was, well, it was two things, a very deep conceptual understanding of what was going on in my people. And then the freedom to be able to respond to them without a whole lot, without the same internal constraint. Okay, sorry, we uh, I lost internet connection there, but we we dropped off while uh, Elaine was discussing control mastery theory. So sorry, go, go ahead, please. <laughs> okay, well, now there's a great it, once somebody understands the fundamental concepts and what it is uh, that their client needs from them, they're free to respond in a great variety of ways. And it doesn't have to be the classical psychoanalytic. Uh, it doesn't, and it can be very unconventional. Joe Weiss had a schizophrenic patient uh, to whom he gave a woman, and he would give her little tiny gifts from time to time. Oh, and I think it, uh, I believe I remember him explaining that one of her pathogenic beliefs was that she was very unworthy. And heaven mm. knows mentally ill people often feel that way. Uh -huh. And that he's give these giving of small gifts to her mm. was a way of confirming, you know, to her huh. that she was worthy. Yeah. And I mean, oh my word, if you'd done that at Michigan, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been not pleasant. It's it's unethical, so, basically, because, right? Like <laughs> that's what yeah, they would no, say. It yeah. would have been yeah. 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 So it was just, it was, and there are reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But I liked that. I thought I had a feeling that, that somehow what he did mm. probably advanced things more for her. And I'm certainly not speaking of failing to have boundaries. And uh -huh. the good control mastery people all have very good boundaries, but they feel freer within mm. those boundaries. 
And I loved it because one can also incorporate other work. And I discovered cognitive behaviorism in Michigan. And remember that I would check out you know, books by Meikenbaum at the library. And then I would hide them in the middle of my <laughs> psychoanalytic books when I went to classes because it, uh, oh, it would not have been good if oh, anyone funny. had known that I was reading them. But oh. I thought there's so, I, I didn't know that that was my preferred style, but I thought there are such important things going on here. Mm. And why can't we consider in, I mean, in a thoughtful way, incorporating some of this kind of work. Mm -hmm. And with control mastery theory, it really doesn't matter what technique you use. You just want to work in a way that's pro-plan. Mm. Yeah. And I, I supervise uh, students for, it's probably been 35 years now at the University of Texas, which is a very high quality uh, cognitive behavioral program. And those guys don't get anything but cognitive behavioral work unless they're interested. And then they could come and meet with me and at one point, some other supervisors too. Uh -huh. And they would do their cognitive behavioral work, but I would just help them understand what lay behind First, in terms of control mastery theory, what their pathogenic beliefs were and made sure that the interventions they did were going to disconfirm the beliefs, mm. you know, kind of telling the patient what they hoped, which is they don't have to believe in the way that they did mm. or whether inadvertently they confirmed them. But it was really a lot of fun in that this is totally a different theory. And yet we managed to use the concepts uh, and they had, you know, just did lovely therapies with clients. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, it's funny. It's you, you mentioned you would bury the cognitive behavioral type books amongst your psychoanalytic books and uh, a lot of the schools now, like maybe perhaps the University of Texas, I know here we joke, we're kind of heavily CBT here and we kind of, we have one psychodynamic or two uh, psychodynamic faculty. They mainly practice psychodynamically. And we always kind of joke that they're like the, like, Hey, you, you like psychodynamic? Like, Hey, let's talk. Like <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you gotta sneak around. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, it's so funny how, yeah, the, the pendulums, swings so mm. much yeah <laughs> um and so how how did you in order to learn control mastery theory did you get like certified and how how did that what was the you training know, like with you being in texas it was uh i went to a seminar that joe weiss and uh one of his protégés taught mm. at cape cod Okay. And then uh, the San Francisco Psychotherapy Research Group had an annual conference mm. that was open to people both in the United States and internationally. And I know that Dr. Silvershots, although it may be online now and it's shorter, it used to be a week, 
So okay. you could go and just spend a week in San Francisco. And uh, it, it was quite lovely. Mm. So I would go to those. And then I found myself a supervisor. Uh, and I did telephone supervision, oh, perhaps for 20 years. Because wow. I, mean, I realized I would not learn it. So, so it, it, yeah. it's both simple and complex. Yeah. Like conceptually, it's very simple. But uh, I, I felt like I really needed help in learning it. Mm. So I spent uh, a fair amount of time just getting that supervision. And then eventually I went on to present papers and teach and I started uh, teaching people at UT and so on. <laughs> Do you still teach it? Uh, very little. Okay. Uh, the, I would be open to it, but as things have changed, mm. uh, there is less openness to that. Mm. And I think there's also more pressure on the students so that making a choice to do something a little outside of the mainstream, that they just don't have as much bandwidth. Yeah, yeah. This, this might be a funny question, but do you remember teaching, do you remember Dr. Stephen Fenn being one of your students? Oh, um, well, he was not actually, he... I, for a little while, I taught courses in the community, and okay. he took a course for me, but he actually was the clinical director at one point when I was uh, on adjunct faculty there. So I met oh. Steve through getting together with him because he wanted to you know, kind of evaluate the people supervising and make sure that they were of adequate quality. So, oh, okay. So, so yeah, we've known each other for a very long time. Oh, good. He's a yeah, very nice guy. Very nice man. Oh yeah. No, he's, he's fabulous. And so kind of, uh, you know, gifted and knowledgeable mm. in mm. his realm. Mm, yeah. Um, okay. And then, and then uh, did you, how long until you started your own kind of private practice? Um, I worked for eight years in a multi-specialty medical clinic okay. when I finished my postdoc. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, and then after that, in the early 90s, I decided that it was time to go into private practice. So I've been in private practice since then. Okay. And yeah, so before, uh, before we started kind of recording, I, I made mention of your, your beautiful room. And if you check your website, um, you kind of emphasize like the garden around your, your practice and like the, there's like pictures of flowers and birds and it's all very lovely. And, um, can you kind of talk a little bit about that in, in your practice? Sure. Well, and that's not meant to be a major part, but I just figured if people were trying to make a choice of therapists, uh -huh. sometimes seeing those sorts of things would be useful. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't uh, regularly, uh, you know, that there's no part of the therapy that's specific to that, uh -huh. except for the fact that in the pandemic, because we couldn't meet indoors, and this is tech after all, I've met a great number of people out in the garden. Uh 
Oh, and that okay. turned out to be quite lovely. Like, you know, if <laughs> yeah. it was summer, we'd sit in the Balinese pavilion by the pond and there would be a fan on. And if it was winter, we'd go into the bottle world because the sun shone brightly there and so <laughs> forth. And it was, uh, I, I don't know, some people say that they find it very calming to be in nature. And if you mm. look at the data on what nature does for people, then mm -hmm. that tends to show up very steadily. Uh -huh. But it, it was never a primary intent. It's just sort of a secondary benefit. Yeah, because it is a very lovely. I'd rather I'd rather sit in this room that you have here than sit in a dark office with gray walls and paintings. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I read something recently that some people were looking now into the idea of doing therapy while people were walking. And I found that interesting. I've had a few clients who actually, I, I live on acreage. So we have about 30 acres of woods behind the house. Nice. And if they want to walk on the trails in the woods, it's very private. And it that, that was very interesting. I couldn't tell you whether it was better or worse. And again, I know no data about that, but I think as the somatic approaches are more and more prominent nowadays, uh -huh. there's the idea of could somehow things be processed in a different way if movement was involved. Hmm. That's very interesting. I've, I've kind of talked with um, my wife about like, I like the idea I'm very far away from it, but I like the idea of having maybe an in-home private practice with maybe a garden out back. And we talked about, you know, with certain clients, especially maybe ones who are depressed. And if if you want to take them outside on a nice sunny day and walk through the garden and, and do therapy that way, like that might be good for all sorts of reasons. And Well, and you know, I have done that on occasion with mm. very depressed people. Mm. I said, we need a little, and this of course is your language. We need some behavioral activation here. <laughs> and you're going to come out and walk just a wee bit. And then, if, you know, uh, and I think that can, you know, that absolutely can help. I don't think there is any data yet Mm. on whether uh, if you walk with people and talk uh -huh. you often are not making eye contact mm. and eye contact is i mean that's how neurologically our brains connect uh -huh. so that's the downside uh -huh. but the upside is sometimes i think people some people as they're moving might feel a little more able to formulate certain things yeah. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. My my mind first just went to um you know, like in in certain circumstances like let's say in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, you might have someone very classical old style like lie on the couch and free associate or something and that's not going to be eye contact. And then I thought I had a a client the other day who normally we kind of just sit and we we talk um, but the other day we did some kind of drawings on a whiteboard and, mm -hmm. and he said he liked it a lot more that it brought up as we were drawing and it brought up a lot more, um, 
thoughts and memories and uh, just emotions that he could kind of talk about. Mm -hmm. Whereas when he's just sitting there, sometimes his mind is kind of blank. And so mm -hmm. that was just interesting. That's what my mind went yeah. to. Now, I, I think we'll probably grow to understand more about that mm -hmm. in a data-based way in uh -huh. upcoming years. And yeah. I think that, you know, all for the best. Yeah, it's exciting. And um, okay, and then how about you just kind of talk about your private practice and what kind of what do you have any areas of like special interest or um that you that you most prefer or like do you have any i don't know limits or <laughs> like maybe yeah. you don't see four-year-olds i don't know <laughs> <laughs> sure. well uh yeah um i have always been more of a generalist in that I didn't want to specialize in any given area. Hmm. Uh, but I, I, having said that, that I do a uh, control mastery is the predominant theory that's kind of underneath everything. Okay. I will do cognitive behavioral work when I think it's warranted. Hmm. And for example, with anxiety disorders, I believe that the data is very robust, that people initially are more helped by a cognitive behavioral approach mm. than an analytic one. And yeah. I mean, sometimes as people go further, they may come to understand the origins of their anxiety. Uh, but uh, so I'll do some cognitive behavioral work. Um, I also, uh, I, have some training in systems theory okay and i love to do couples work and i love to just think about family systems because oh. they're the most you know complex and fascinating and exasperating and lovely <laughs> and you know all of that uh -huh. so i'll do that kind of work um and i work with trauma to a certain degree hmm. not the most severe trauma the very hmm. very you know, uh, but I, I certainly know more about trauma than uh, I think than some people do and mm -hmm. find that it's just, it's really an amazing area in which to work. Yeah. And then I think the one other area most specifically is I've always been interested in how people managed illness. Uh, kind of um, almost like behavioral medicine, except mm. a little less scripted. But I've worked with a lot of people who had chronic illness, and it could range from autoimmune illness to mm. cancer to not so much the brain injuries, because I'm not neurologically trained, uh -huh. but just uh, how to make meaning in a life where one ends up being very limited mm. by you know physical constraints or pain yeah yeah okay so you um, can see it's kind of a melange and uh yeah. I, I don't like to work with perpetrators uh okay I, i'm not trained to do that nor in many cases you know certainly like with domestic violence the data is real clear that a group setting is far more effective. Mm. So, you know, I, uh, I don't work with them. Uh, don't work with young children because I have no training. I mean, um, and I, uh, as I, I, because I work out at my home, uh -huh. I am not 
uh, inclined to accept people that I think might be dangerous in some way. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, so I do some screening in terms of if I think, think people are highly aggressive and impulsive, mm. then we're just not the right fit for one another. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. So, so you, your private practice isn't, it's like an in-home private practice. Well, I have a little dedicated office that's, uh, it's a bit of ways from uh, my home, uh-huh. but anyone who came to see me, absolutely knows where I live. Okay. uh, There's that. And it, when people do that, I mean, in-home offices work very well. If people have, if they can be more selective Mm -hmm. in their practice Uh and mostly that, and most clients are not going to be dangerous. But Mm. for example, when I was younger, I sometimes worked with women who were attempting to leave marriages where partners mm. were pretty coercive and abusive. Uh-huh. And that would not be a kind of situation that I would feel comfortable to accept now. Mm. That makes sense. I So when I talk with my wife about having an in-home practice one day, she that's one of the things that she brought up was, uh, I wonder how that works with uh, certain clients and um, and screening them and, and such, as you said. Yeah. yeah, you have to be able to screen. Mm. And that means that you have to be at a point in your practice, like in the beginning, most of us, as long as we feel qualified to treat, uh-huh. we'll try most everything. Uh-huh. You know, when yeah. I went into private practice, I was quite willing if people called me and wanted to be seen, as long as I felt that I was qualified, uh-huh. I'd give it a try. And as you get more experience, you learn, oh, I'm not as good with people like that. Or, mm. or And then they're the ones who mean business and are really going to work. And yeah. although I'm not as impatient as some of my colleagues, I have some who basically say, they're not willing to work. I'm not willing to see them. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> um. Yeah. And then, and then I I was telling someone, I think just yesterday about the idea of an in-home practice and they asked me if I've ever seen the movie, what about Bob? And (laughs) 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 I don't think that's likely, but (laughs) no, I, I I do not think that's okay. And I had, uh, I have known many people. Well, I don't know if I'd say many, but I've known a number of people who had practices in their home Uh and in some cases actually literally in their home. So Mm. you had to walk in the front door to get to the room that was their office. Uh And I I have never heard of anybody. uh, I've actually never heard of anyone getting in difficulty with it. But again, if you were, uh, if you were seeing a certain, like there's a man in Austin who had a specialty with antisocial people. Mm. And my guess is that he probably saw them in an office, uh-huh. in an office yeah. building. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Uh, how do you, how, how much longer do you kind of plan on practicing or do you, have you 
no, no reason to think about that. <laughs> no, I have thought about it. Uh, I absolutely love the work. Mm. And just right now, I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah. But I'm also at 66. Mm. I'm at the age where I, I've seen people practice too long. Uh -huh. And although none of us ever wants to become <laughs> demented, there is that that there's a time when we need to leave or even in one case, I had a colleague who was very, very physically ill mm. and should have stopped practicing and did not do so. And as a result, some errors were made that I think had she been in had she been stronger because uh -huh. she was a, a really very reputable and good person mm -hmm. so I, on one hand i love it love it love it and want uh -huh. to keep doing it and on the other hand uh if i you know get to the point where i'm doddering in any way then <laughs> yeah. i think oh time to go <laughs> yeah. but and the thing about a practice at home is that it's very easy to do you know, I, some of my clients tease me about my commute and how rough it is. <laughs> and also, you know, I uh, I have no overhead. You know, I own the building. I built it, you know, uh -huh. out of money I save. Yeah. So it becomes possible to practice very, very minimally mm -hmm. in a way that for someone like yourself, uh -huh. you're going to have office rent and it just isn't feasible. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't, you know, uh, my guess is that somewhere or by the time I'm 70, I may want to be slower, but we'll see whether I want to just slow down and see a few people for a bit longer or yeah. whether it's time to go. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things I love about this profession is I, I grew up um, and like country Ohio, you either you build houses or you work in a factory or and oh. yeah. And so one of the things I love about this is that as long as, like you said, as long as your your cognitive and your physical health is good, then you can you can practice right up until the end of basically, you know. Yeah, it's a very in that way, it's a very intellectual profession mm, yeah. uh, and it and and it's lovely because the older we get presumably the wiser we get hopefully yeah and so there's you know uh, one would hope so <laughs> uh, and so we actually have more to bring mm. mm -hmm. to the treatment and there are a lot of professions where you know if it's an athletic profession dance mm -hmm. or sports people absolutely have a shelf life. And then, you know, if you're in, you know, marketing or IT, you yeah. know, those are places where if you're over 40, you better be damnably good at what you're doing because uh -huh. otherwise you're viewed with suspicion, mm. you know, and this is, it's lovely because there's so much freedom and capacity just to keep going mm. and there's flexibility. Uh -huh. That, I mean, I really, if people are suited to being therapists, I just, oh, it's such a fabulous profession. I can just, I love the, uh, the enthusiasm that you bring to the <laughs> conversation. Yes. Um, I guess maybe my last question. Um, hmm. What kind of, um, 
What kind of advice would you have for, for the up and coming clinicians and psychologists? Um, maybe some words of wisdom or, or just, yeah. Well, goodness. <laughs> I think I would absolutely encourage people to learn as much as they can. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that I think being eclectic is always the way to go, uh-huh. but simply you know, try to see what's out there because it's a fascinating profession and rapidly changing Uh in a lot of ways. So it it would be keeping an open mind. And then the other thing that I would really urge people to do is to to make sure that they take care of themselves because most of us who go into therapy feel a little responsible or we wouldn't bother with such, we do something more frivolous uh-huh. and it's easy to get over responsible and there, and sometimes it's easy to get too worn out. Mm. And although I, uh, their psychology is infinitely better than medicine about self care. Mm. I have a son who's a young physician okay. and I was really appalled at their feeble attempts at teaching self-care in medicine. And my experience is a lot of physicians really don't, they have not had help to learn that. Psychology is better, but even so, I think you, you know, it's hard to help other people unless we feel centered and grounded in some way. And that involves sometimes getting away from it it involves always having people to talk to. Mm. No matter how experienced, you know, we still need our sounding boards. Mm. And just knowing that the way we help other people is that we take good care of ourselves too. Yeah, good, good. Well, Elaine, it's been a very um, pleasant conversation. You're a very beautiful person, and I appreciate you coming on to talk with me. Well. Um, my pleasure, and I certainly wish you and all of your listeners all the best in kind of, you know, sort of being, you know, keeping psychology going on because it's, oh. it's a lovely profession. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.